I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. From CBC Podcasts. I'm David Ridgen, and this is The Next Call. In September 1996, Melanie Ethier disappeared from northeastern Ontario. Her mother, Celine, is still searching for answers. I can't let it go. I need to find her. She deserves that much. I follow every tip and every theory. Investigations that could break wide open with The Next Call. Available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. The Chicago area weather on Friday, January 8, 1993, was typical for that time of year. It was cold in the Windy City. The temperature had been between 6 to 26 degrees, with snow falling off and on. Late in the evening, as businesses began to close, and employees prepared to go home for the night. The workers in one particular restaurant did not know at the time that they would not be going home that night. Hours after they began their closing routine, seven dead bodies would be discovered inside of Brown's Chicken, a popular restaurant chain. Upon entering the bloody scene, Officer Ron Conley dispatched backup saying five in the cooler. This tragedy was the worst mass murder in the Chicago area since 1966, when Richard Speck murdered eight student nurses in their dorm. It would take nine long years for authorities to receive a break in this horrendous case. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case widely known as the Brown's Chicken Massacre.
village of Palatine, Illinois, is a suburb about 30 miles northwest of Chicago. Founded in 1866, the village's motto is a real hometown. In 1993, the Palatine Police Department had a stellar reputation and consisted of about 80 officers. Good Housekeeping Magazine listed it as one of the top 10 police departments in the country. Prior to January 1993, there had only been one murder in Palatine within the previous four years. On Friday, January 8, 1993, just a few minutes after the Brown's Chicken restaurant in Palatine closed at 9 p.m., two customers knocked on the door, asking to be let in. The owners of the franchise, Richard Ellenfelt, who went by Dick, along with his wife Lynn, and the five employees with them that evening, were cleaning the store preparing to go home. Even so, they decided to let the two people inside. One of the after-hours customers ordered a four-piece chicken meal at 9.08 p.m., as documented by the cash register tape. Once the meal was ready, he started eating. While the employees and owners continued their closing duties, suddenly, the two customers stood up. A warning shot rang out, and then one of the men told everyone they were being robbed. All seven people were herded into the back of the store, where Lynn Ellenfelt was ordered to open the safe. After being in the restaurant for approximately 44 minutes, the two men departed in a vehicle. After leaving, the men threw their clothes, now stained with blood, in a dumpster. They placed their weapons, a 38 caliber handgun and a folding knife, inside of a bag and threw it into the Fox River Dam, about 23 miles north of Palatine. A few hours after the men had made their exit, the bodies of seven people were found inside the restaurant. Nobody had survived the attack. Dick Ellenfelt, 50, and his wife Lynn, 49, met as students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They married in 1964. After graduating, they moved to Boston, where Dick attended seminary to become a minister, and Lynn got a job in social work. Dick volunteered to work on George McGovern's 1972 presidential campaign and left the seminary when he was offered a full-time position on McGovern's staff. The family then moved back to Wisconsin. After McGovern lost the election, Dick became press secretary on his senatorial staff. Dick stayed in politics until 1979, when he decided to start spending more time with his family, which included three daughters, Jennifer, Dana, and Joy. Dick got a job with a cable company in Wisconsin and was eventually transferred to Chicago, where he rented an apartment. He would travel back to Wisconsin on weekends to be with his family. In 1981, the family moved to the Chicago suburb of Arlington Heights, right next to Palatine where Dick continued to work for the cable company until 1990. That year, the cable company was bought out and Dick lost his job. After being unemployed for two years, Dick and Lynn decided to use his retirement money, all of their savings, and any money they could borrow to get the $300,000 needed to purchase a Brown's Chicken franchise, which they took over in the spring of 1992. At the time of the murders, the Ellenfelt's daughters, Joy and Dana, were in college and helped at the restaurant whenever they could. At 16 years old, 
Michael Castro was the youngest of the Brown's Chicken restaurant victims. Michael got the job at Brown's Chicken from being in the co-op program at Palatine High School. He loved cars and was saving money to buy something nicer than the pickup truck he had at the time. Michael was planning to join the Marine Corps when he graduated and wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. In the summer of 1992, he had helped his friend Rico Solis get a job at Brown's Chicken. 17-year-old Rico Solis grew up in the Philippines. His father was murdered when he was just 12 years old. Rico's mother later remarried and moved to the U.S. while Rico and his two younger sisters, Jade and Giselle, stayed in the Philippines with their grandfather. In 1992, their mother and stepfather, now in the Chicago area, sent for the children. Rico used the money he earned working at Brown's Chicken to buy a car. He planned to join the U.S. Army after graduating from high school. Rico was not scheduled to work on January 8th. When he came in to pick up his paycheck, Lynn Ellenfelt asked him if he could work for Casey Sander, one of the few female employees at Brown's Chicken. Casey had worked every Friday night since starting her job almost six months earlier, and Lynn wanted her to have the night off. Although unplanned, Rico agreed to take Casey's shift. Lynn, the owner, was also supposed to be off that night. Her daughter Dana, home from college, had been working at the restaurant all afternoon and was scheduled to work until close, but Lynn let her go home so she could go out to dinner with her boyfriend and his parents. 47-year-old Guadalupe Maldonado had just returned to the U.S. from Mexico with his wife Beatrice and their three sons. Originally from Mexico, he had first come to the Chicago area in 1975 at the behest of a family member and got a job at Ye Old Town Inn in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Guadalupe returned to Mexico a few years later and met Beatrice. They married, had two sons, and then moved back to Mount Prospect. Guadalupe again began working at Ye Old Town Inn until 1988, when the family moved back to Mexico again. In 1992, with the Mexican economy doing poorly, Guadalupe decided to return to the U.S. He and Beatrice and their three sons moved back to Mount Prospect on December 23rd. He called his old employer, Yield Town Inn, three days later to see if he could get his job back. The manager definitely wanted him, but they didn't have any openings at the time. Guadalupe began filling out applications at different restaurants, which brought him into Brown's Chicken to apply. He was hired on the spot. On January 8th, the night of the murders, he had received his first paycheck. 32-year-old Tom Menez had lived in Palatine his entire life. He and his identical twin brother, Jerry, were the youngest of six boys. They were named after the popular cat-and-mouse cartoon that originated in the 1940s. On the day of the murders, Tom's best friend, Dirk Mesner, said he asked him to call in sick so they could go hunting. Tom said he couldn't because there was a big basketball game between Palatine High School and Fremd High School. Messner said later, Tom's exact words were, I can't. There's something big going on at the school, so they're going to be shorthanded. I've got to go to work. This according to a January 8, 2003 Daily Herald article. 
31-year-old Marcus Nelson met his wife Beverly while they both served in the U.S. Navy. They had their only child, Jessica, in 1986, but their marriage fell apart when Marcus developed a drinking problem. The couple divorced in 1988. Marcus left the Navy and moved to Chicago, where he had lived as a child. He worked several jobs and sent money to Beverly and Jessica, hoping to reconcile. When Marcus's job moved out of state and he couldn't find another, his unemployment and unhappiness over the divorce led to depression, and his drinking got worse. He checked himself into rehab at Forest Hospital in De Plains, Illinois. After being discharged, Marcus got a job as a cook at a retirement home. He didn't have a car, and it was a long walk to the retirement home. At one point, he went to the nearby Brown's Chicken in Palatine and inquired about working there. He was immediately hired as a cook. Marcus quickly worked his way up to assistant manager, and the Ellenfelts were ready to give him even more responsibility. They had arranged for Marcus to begin taking managerial classes from Brown's corporate offices. His first class was set to begin on Saturday, January 9th, the day after the murders. If you peep my Instagram stories, you will see that my German Shepherd Shadow is my best friend and star of most of my social media posts. His safety and happiness mean so much to me. This is why I am so excited to use the Halo Collar on him. Check this out. Halo Collar is a smart dog collar that tracks your dog with GPS, and it also trains and protects your dog. Here's how it works. Halo Collar allows you to set up fences by simply walking the perimeter of the area with the collar, or you can set up fences in the Halo app. Shadow loves to run free off the leash, but I worry about his safety when we do this. With Halo Collar, Shadow can run free and I don't have to stress because I know exactly where he is and the fences I set up will keep him confined to a certain area. A lot of the hiking trails I take Shadow on don't have cell service, but it's not an issue because Halo Collar works without cell service or Wi-Fi. I love that Halo Collar has tech built in that allows me to train and offer feedback to Shadow through the collar in my own voice. Finally, there's a solution to providing peace of mind while allowing my fur babe to do what he loves, roam free off the leash. Take advantage of this special limited time introductory offer today. Save 20% on your Halo Collar by going to shophalocollar.com slash murderish. That's shophalocollar.com slash murderish to save 20%. You must go to this site to get this offer, and it can only be gotten here. Shophalocollar.com slash murderish. With all the stuff I lug around each day, I need a good bag to hold everything and keep it organized. I recently found Hedgren, a global brand that makes essential bags and travel gear that look good and are functional at the same time. In fact, Hedgren's core values when it comes to their bags are smart functionality, affordability, intuitive design, freedom of movement, style, and sustainability. I've been carrying my water-repellent Hedgren Aura backpack for weeks now and I love how lightweight it is and that it safely holds all of my podcast gear while keeping everything organized. 
It's made with sustainable nylon and comes with a two-year warranty. I recently took my Aura backpack with me on a trip and I carried it through the busy airport. The straps never dug into my shoulders and it fit perfectly under the seat in front of me on the airplane. Headgrin offers bags and travel gear for women and men and unique styles that you will love. My husband really likes the Headgrin duffel bag and I've got my eye on their crossbody bag. Headgrin cares about quality. Their products are extremely durable and they also care about the planet and sustainability. Order a Headgrin bag and receive 20% off by going to headgrin.com murderish. Use promo code murderish20 at checkout and enjoy free shipping with your purchase. That's H-E-D-G-R-E-N dot com slash murderish and use promo code murderish20 at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Around 11 p.m. that fateful Friday, Michael Castro's parents, Manny and Epiphania, could not wait any longer. Their son was always home on time. Manny drove to Brown's Chicken, where he saw his son's pickup truck in the parking lot. Feeling somewhat satisfied, he went back home, hoping Michael had gotten a lift from a coworker. When he got home, Michael still wasn't there. A little while later, the Castros got a call from Evelyn Urgina, Rico Solis' mother. Rico had also not returned home from work. Evelyn asked if her son was at their house, but he wasn't. Around midnight, Palatine police officer Ron Conley was called to the parking lot of Brown's Chicken. Someone had reported a man standing outside of the restaurant. When Conley arrived, he saw Pedro Maldonado, who told him his brother, Guadalupe, worked at Brown's Chicken and had not come home after work. Pedro said his brother was always home by 9.30. Conley told Pedro that his brother probably just went out with some friends and that he'd be home soon. Despite Conley's statement, Pedro noted that his brother's car was still in the parking lot. A little while later, Manny Castro called the Palatine PD to report both Michael and Rico as missing. Then he and Epiphania drove back to Brown's Chicken, where they saw Palatine police officer Dan Bonneville around one in the morning. Bonneville told them that Michael was probably out with friends and not to worry. Then, Officer Bonneville left. The Castros waited in the parking lot for a while, then drove to the police department to file a missing persons report on their son. Officer Bonneville later filed a police report claiming that while he was at the restaurant, he walked around the entire perimeter and checked on all of the doors. His report indicated that all of the restaurant doors were locked. After filing the missing person's reports, Manny returned to Brown's Chicken around 3 a.m., where he met Officer Conley. At the time, the two of them decided to check the doors of the restaurant. All of them were locked until they got to the employee entrance in the back. Officer Conley grabbed the handle and yanked, expecting it to be closed like the others. But the door swung open. He walked inside, followed by Manny Castro. Upon entering, Manny saw his son's jacket hanging on the wall. He pointed it out to Conley, who was not paying any attention to the wall. The officer realized quickly that this had just become much more serious than a missing person's case. The freezer door was ajar, blocked open by a human arm. Blood covered the floor. 
Officer Conley stepped in front of Manny Castro and told him he could not go any further. The restaurant had become a crime scene. At 3.11 a.m., Conley made the call to dispatch that will forever be associated with the Browns' chicken murders. He chillingly said, there's five in the cooler, as reported by John J. Flood and Jim McGough in a 1997 staff analysis by the Better Government Association. Around 6 a.m. on Saturday, January 9th, the phone rang at the home of Frank Portillo, president of Brown's Chicken. It was one of his franchise supervisors who told him to turn on the TV. Upon seeing the news, Frank immediately went to the restaurant to see how he could help. Brown's Chicken was originally opened in 1949 by John Brown and his wife, Belva, who were chicken farmers. They began by selling chicken out of a trailer in front of their farm in Bridgeview, Illinois. Their business quickly grew, and they needed something larger than their trailer. One of their friends, Frank Portillo Sr., had a son, Frank Jr., who was a college architectural student. The Browns hired Frank to design a permanent building for them, and then Frank began helping the Browns run the restaurant. In 1958, Frank and his wife opened their own Browns Chicken in Elmhurst, about 25 miles from Bridgeview, because they didn't want to take any business away from John and Belva. Because they couldn't get a business loan, John and Belva offered to partner with the Portillos. Brown's Chicken founder, John Brown, died on December 30, 1992, nine days prior to the murders. Around 3.30 on Saturday morning, Palatine Deputy Police Chief Jack McGregor received a call from Sergeant Bob Haas, the overnight watch commander. Haas told his boss that he was at Brown's Chicken and that there had been multiple murders. Haas spoke to McGregor as he walked through the scene, giving him updates. When McGregor asked about the survivors, he was told there are none. As investigators reviewed the scene, they initially thought this may have been a robbery gone bad. According to restaurant receipts, the suspects got away with about $1,800. It also looked like there was an attempt to clean up the scene. There was a mop with a bloody handle in the back room, and blood was all over the floor. Crime scene techs took photos and video of every inch of the restaurant. They dusted surfaces for fingerprints and removed the countertops and back door that Connolly found unlocked. All of the items were sent back to the crime lab. All of the trash cans inside of the restaurant were found to be empty all except for one, located in the front of the restaurant. Inside, investigators found the remainder of a four-piece chicken dinner. According to the cash register, this was the last meal purchased that night. Jane Homeyer, one of the forensic examiners with the Illinois Police Crime Lab, froze the remains of the meal in order to preserve it for further testing. A shoe print was found and later identified to be from a Nike Air Force sneaker, size 12 to 14, made between June 1990 and November 1992. They believe the person who made the print was between six and six and a half feet tall. The murderers did not leave any shell casings behind, meaning they either used a revolver and had to reload, or they picked up all of the shell casings before leaving the scene. Crime scene techs found all but one of the bullets inside either the cooler or the freezer, 
where the bodies were discovered. There were 21 bullets fired, meaning that the killer or killers had to reload three times. Something about the scene bothered McGregor. Except for the utility light, all of the lights in the restaurant had been turned off, presumably by the murderers before they left. They were turned off by a switch box that controlled the power to the entire store. The switch box was behind a wall in the back of the restaurant. Someone would have to have known where the switch box was ahead of time and what it was for in order to turn it off. And why did the murderers turn off the lights before they fled anyway? How could they have known that the restaurant turned off the lights after closing? Police knew the lights had been turned off at 9.52 p.m. because a clock in the restaurant, also controlled by the switch box, was stopped at that time. The murders had to have occurred between 9.08 p.m. when the last meal was purchased and 9.52 p.m. when the lights were turned off. Tips began coming into authorities right away, and one of them caught their attention. A woman said that she and her sister had a friend named Martin. Martin was recently fired from Brown's Chicken by the Ellenfelt, and he had made threats against them. The woman also said that Martin owned a gun. Police looked into the man and found out his full name, Martin Blake. They also discovered that Blake used to date Mary Jane Castro, a former employee of Brown's Chicken, Mary Jane's younger brother, Michael Castro was also one of the murder victims. Additionally, Michael's wounds seemed to be overkill. He was not only shot, but he was stabbed as well. Police decided to bring Martin Blake in for questioning. Because he had a gun, they chose not to alert him prior to taking him in. On the afternoon of January 9th, Blake came outside of his house and got into his SUV. Across the street, Men dressed as employees from the water department were actually police officers. When his vehicle failed to start, Blake got out, opened up the hood, and police pounced. As reported in a January 8, 2003 Daily Herald article, according to officers, Blake said, Is this about last night? Back at the Palatine Police Station, Blake was held for two days while being questioned. He said he was out drinking with friends the previous evening. Police spoke with his friends who backed up his story. With no reason to hold him, Blake was released from custody and the investigation continued. A task force involving over 100 members from over 20 agencies was quickly formed. Bob Skigalski, a criminal profiler with the FBI, told the task force that he believed there must have been at least two murderers involved, possibly as many as four. He said that the gun being reloaded showed a lack of planning, which indicated that the suspects were probably young, likely between 18 to 25 years old. Investigators also believe that the murderers may have had some familiarity with the store. Authorities eventually spoke with over 300 current and former employees of the Palatine Brown's Chicken franchise to glean information that may help in their investigation, but they came up empty. A year came and went, and during that time, the task force received over 3,000 tips, examined more than 1,000 leads, and the crime lab spent over 1,600 hours processing evidence. People in the community were highly motivated to find out 
who committed the murders, and they raised over $120,000 as a reward to help find the killers. At the end of the first year, over two dozen investigators were still working the case full-time. After three years, the number had been reduced to seven. In January of 1996, at the three-year anniversary of the murders, the Palatine Police Department called a press conference. According to a January 8, 2003 Daily Herald article, Police Chief Jerry Bratcher said at the press conference, all it takes is one phone call, one bit of information to solve this. Bratcher's statement would turn out to be accurate years later. In 1997, the Better Government Association, or BGA, a watchdog organization dedicated to accountability and transparency in government, released a 38,000-word report entitled Patent Malarkey, Public Dishonesty and Deception, The Brown's Chicken Massacre. The report blasted the Palatine PD's handling of the murders. The report had largely been created using anonymous statements made by members of the task force. Among other things, it criticized the crime lab used by the department, calling it a disaster and referring to it as understaffed, underqualified, and unprepared. The report called out what it referred to as horrendous mistakes in securing the crime scene and evidence-gathering process. This according to a December 15, 2005 article found at restaurantbusinessonline.com. The report further claimed that police contaminated the crime scene immediately by allowing more than 50 people to enter the building. It accused the department of countless mistakes and resulting cover-ups in the Brown's chicken murder investigation. The report was especially critical of Palatine Police Chief Jerry Bratcher. The report also mentioned Officer Dan Bonneville's claim that he had personally checked all the outside doors, finding them to be locked. The BGA document went on to explain that Officer Dan Bonneville is the son of Bob Bonneville, who in 1993 was the police chief of Prospect Heights, Illinois, a suburb about six miles east of Palatine. Bob Bonneville was also a good friend of Palatine Police Chief Jerry Bratcher. In December of 1992, Dan Bonneville was almost fired from the Palatine PD by Bratcher for getting into an altercation with an officer from another department. Bratcher eventually decided to give his friend's son a 30-day suspension, the longest suspension allowed on the force without having to fire the officer. Bonneville had just come off of his suspension a few days before he was called to Brown's Chicken. In April of 2000, DNA testing revealed that saliva found on the chicken dinner recovered from the restaurant trash can did not match any of the seven victims or anyone working at the restaurant in January of 1993. A few months later, the Illinois State Crime Commission released a report that said the Palatine PD investigated the case properly, which was in stark contrast to the 1997 BGA report. On April 27, 2001, the building at 168 West Northwest Highway, where the murders occurred, was demolished. Jennifer and her sisters wanted to keep the restaurant open after the tragedy, 
but realized it was not going to be possible. Even if they could do it on their own, customers would not want to come to a restaurant where seven people were murdered. Finally, in March of 2002, over nine years after the crimes took place, when the hopes of the victims' loved ones and the investigators had long since dwindled, the lead they had all been waiting for came in. Lead number 4,842 was the one that finally broke the almost decade-old case wide open. As Chief Bratcher said in 1996, all it takes is one phone call. A woman named Melissa Oberly called a friend of hers at the Palatine PD and told her that she had a friend she knew from high school who needed to speak with someone about the Brown's Chicken Massacre from 1993. As it turned out, her friend knew a lot, and she was finally ready to talk about it. I have been on a mission to work out and eat clean. My main concern has always been what I'm putting into my body. Luckily, I found Gainful, a personalized nutrition system that's made specifically for my body and the goals I want to achieve. All of Gainful's products have ingredients you can pronounce and zero artificial colors or flavors. I've been taking Gainful's pre-workout protein and I love that it's low-carb, 95% lactose-free, soy-free, and it delivers 19 grams of protein per serving. I add one packet of Gainful Madagascar Vanilla Flavor Boost to it and oh my gosh, it's delicious. All of Gainful's products are formulated by their on-staff registered dietitians because quality and effectiveness are top of mind. It's kind of scary to walk into a nutrition store and hope the person working there actually knows which supplements are best for you. That's why I much prefer my Gainful subscription that can be canceled at any time. If you want a personalized supplement routine with clean ingredients to help you achieve your health goals, you have to try Gainful. I took the five-minute quiz on their website and quickly had supplement recommendations that met all the criteria I set forth and would be effective for my body and my health goals. To get $20 off your personalized supplements, go to Gainful.com Murderish. That's Gainful.com Murderish for $20 off. Gainful, personalized nutrition made for your taste. Ready for a good mystery? Check out 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind All of Them, a book by two-time National Book Award finalist Laura Ruby. This riveting historical mystery takes place in Chicago in 1941. Frankie is left in an orphanage by her father after her mother's death. Eventually, Frankie begins to question what really happened to her mother. She wonders about her past, what else might she discover, and just how much she'll have to risk to get answers. The New York Times said about 13 doorways wolves behind them all, haunting and hopeful in equal measure. NPR's Caitlin Paxson says, Even when I put it down, 13 doorways' moody miasma lingered, pulling me back in. This eerie page-turner should be your next read. It'll leave you in shock, and you won't be able to put it down, trust me. 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All by Laura Ruby, inspired by a true story. Now in paperback from Balzer and Bray, an imprint of HarperCollins. 
On March 25, 2002, Palatine Police Chief John Koziel, Cook County Sheriff's Commander John Robertson, and Cook County Assistant State's Attorney Scott Cassidy met with Melissa's friend, Ann Lockett. On January 8, 1993, the day of the murders, Ann was in rehab at Forest Hospital in De Plains, Illinois, after a suicide attempt. That evening, she said she received a phone call from her boyfriend, 20-year-old James Degorski, who told her to watch the news that night because he had done something big. The top story on the news was the Browns' chicken murders in Palatine. After being discharged from rehab, Anne was at Degorski's house, and his friend Juan Luna was also there. She said the two men asked her if she wanted to know what happened that night. She said she did. They told her they went to Brown's Chicken just after closing time. They brought a 38 caliber handgun and a folding knife with them. They said that Luna ordered a meal, which upset Degorski, who was afraid that grease from the chicken would leave fingerprints. They said they waited a few minutes and then got up and approached the counter. Degorski said he fired a shot into the air, telling everyone in the restaurant they were being robbed. One employee jumped over the counter and Degorski shot him. They got everyone into the back of the restaurant, emptied the safe, and then they killed all of them. Degorski told Anne that one of the male employees had vomited french fries a detail that had never been released to the media. They also said they tried to clean up because there was so much blood on the floor. After they left, they said they threw their shoes and clothes away and Degorski threw the knife and gun into the Fox River. Anne said she waited so long to come forward because Degorski had threatened to kill her if she ever told anyone. She said that Degorski and Luna had chosen Brown's Chicken because Luna previously worked there, knew the layout of the store, and knew there were no video cameras. Ironically, Luna had been interviewed by police shortly after the bodies were discovered, but at the time, investigators had no reason to think he had been involved. Anne continued dating Degorski until 1994 when she broke up with him. The following year, she and her parents moved to Oregon. A few years later, she moved to Charleston, Illinois, about 200 miles south of Palatine, to attend Eastern Illinois University. Anne recalled Degorski's threat to kill her if she ever told anyone about the murders. Every so often, she said Degorski would call her mother to find out where she lived, and then he would call Anne just to let her know he was still around. His way of continuing to instill fear in her. While she was at school in Charleston, Anne lived with her boyfriend. In the fall of 2001, she finally told him what Degorski had told her about the murders years ago. The couple talked about what they should do next. At first, they considered sending an anonymous letter to police, letting them know who the murderers were, but decided against it. Anne eventually told her mother and her sister about the murders and told them she did not want them telling Degorski where she lived. In March of 2002, she asked Melissa Oberly to forward a letter to police so it couldn't be traced back to her. When Melissa asked her what she wanted to write in the letter, Anne told her about the murders. Melissa said she had a friend in the Palatine PD who could help, which led to Anne agreeing to speak with police about what she knew. 
along with the information she got from Degorski, Anne told police something else. There was another friend who knew everything that happened, Eileen Bacala. Authorities caught up with Eileen, and she backed up everything Anne said. On May 9, 2002, Bill King, a sergeant with the Palatine PD, received the call investigators had been waiting on for over nine years. After law enforcement received the names of the two men who supposedly committed the murders, they obtained a DNA sample from Luna the following month. The Illinois State Police Crime Lab was then able to produce a DNA match to the chicken meal that had been discarded in the restaurant trash can. The DNA matched Juan Luna. On May 15th, Eileen Bacala met with police to tell them what she knew. On January 8, 1993, she said she had been working the end of her shift at Jake's Pizza in Hoffman Estates when she received a call from her friend, James Degorski. Degorski told her that he and Luna had done something big and they needed to be picked up. She said she met them in the parking lot of a Jewel Osco in Carpentersville, where they left Luna's car and got into hers. Eileen said she drove Degorski and Luna back to her home, where they got high and split the money from Brown's chicken. Eileen said that Degorski paid her $50, which she claimed was repayment for money he owed her. A few hours later, Eileen dropped Luna off in the Jewel Osco parking lot, where his car was parked. She said that Degorski asked her to drive by the Browns' chicken, and when they did, they saw police cars and ambulances. Eileen said that Degorski told her he and Luna had killed everyone in the store. She said she went with Degorski to a car wash the next day to help him clean up Luna's car. Eileen also gave Luna his alibi to police, telling him that he was with her the night of the murders which is likely the reason investigators cleared him as a suspect so quickly after the murders. On Thursday, May 16th, Luna and Degorski were both taken into custody. Luna was arrested at a gas station in Carpentersville, Illinois, where he lived with his wife and son. Degorski was arrested at his job in Indianapolis. Both men confessed, and Luna's confession was videotaped. On May 18th, both men were officially charged for the murders. In his confession, Luna said he slashed Lynn Ellenfeld's throat. When Degorski handed him the gun and told him to shoot, he said he started shooting into the cooler, but he didn't know if he hit anyone. According to a March 28, 2007 Chicago Tribune article by Carlos Sadovi, Luna said, I wasn't really aiming for anybody to get shot or anything like that, just to scare them because I didn't want to hurt anybody anymore. They were yelling, don't shoot us, please don't shoot us. Their hands were shaking. Then, Degorski took the gun and started shooting. Guadalupe Maldonado, Marcus Nelson, and Michael Castro were shot twice. Lynn Ellenfelt was shot once. Rico Solis was shot three times. Guadalupe, Michael, and Rico were shot in the hands or arms, which suggested that they put their arms up to try to protect themselves from the bullets. Michael was also stabbed in the stomach, possibly to make sure he was dead. Guadalupe was shot twice in the head and once through his hand. In the other walk-in cooler, Richard Ellenfelt and Tom Menes must have heard the shots and thought it was a robbery 
as $90 was found inside Tom's sock and one of Richard's credit cards was found inside of a box in the cooler. Degorski admitted that he had shot and killed both of them. Richard was shot five times in the head, back, and shoulder. Tom was shot three times. Luna said that before they left, Degorski went around to the victims, kicking some and hitting others with a broomstick to make sure there were no survivors. On the way out, Luna said he hit the power switch behind the pole, turning off every light in the building except for one, the utility light, which remained on. They left thinking they had gotten away without leaving any evidence of their crimes. Though Degorski admitted his role that night, including getting rid of the gun by throwing it into the Fox River, he refused to take part in a recorded statement. Police said that Degorski led them to the spot at the Fox River where he said he threw the gun they used in the murders. Divers were sent numerous times to the area, but the gun was never retrieved. Born in Mexico on February 16, 1974, Juan Luna came to the U.S. with his family in 1979 in search of a better life. Although he had no criminal record prior to the murders, Luna and Degorski were known to abuse alcohol and drugs and allegedly tortured and killed animals. After the murders, Luna moved to Hoffman Estates, and in 1994, he moved back to Mexico. There, he met a woman named Imelda, got married, and came back to the Chicago area in 1996. Luna and his wife settled in Carpentersville, Illinois, about 13 miles west of Palatine, where he got a job installing kitchen appliances. Imelda gave birth to their son in 1997. Luna's criminal record was clean except for an arrest in 1999 for writing a bad check in the amount of $100. James Degorski was born in Chicago on August 20, 1972. Unlike Luna, he did have a criminal record prior to the murders. In 1990, he and some friends broke into a construction trailer. After he left, his friends set the trailer on fire. He pleaded guilty to theft and was sentenced to court supervision. Degorski was later caught with a friend in a stolen vehicle. In 1992, He was convicted for kidnapping, beating, and restraining his girlfriend when she tried to break up with him. Shockingly, Degorski was only sentenced to probation for those crimes. After the Brown's Chicken murders, Degorski bounced around to different jobs in the Chicago area. His first contact with police after the murders was a 1994 arrest in Arizona for possession of marijuana. He received a fine and was put on probation for the offense. Four years later, in 1998, Degorski was charged with DUI, speeding, and possession of marijuana. He was fined, put on probation, and lost his driver's license. It seems that Degorski had dodged incarceration numerous times, leaving many to wonder whether the Browns' chicken murders could have been avoided if he had been sentenced appropriately especially after his 1992 conviction for kidnapping, beating, and restraining his girlfriend. In 2001, Degorski moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, and worked with a contractor to help repair condominiums. The owner of the business considered Degorski one of his best workers. 
The prosecution wanted Luna and Degorski to be tried together for the murders, but Circuit County Judge Vincent Gahn ruled that they must have separate trials because Luna's confession put most of the blame on Degorski. Jury selection for Juan Luna's trial began on March 28, 2007. Opening arguments began the following month when Cook County State's Attorney Richard Devine told the jury they would be learning about the DNA evidence matching saliva from the chicken dinner to Juan Luna. The prosecution told the jury that the odds of the DNA belonging to anyone other than Luna were 1 in 2.8 trillion. They'd also be viewing the videotaped confession Luna gave to police and a member of the state's attorney's office. The jury would also see videotape from the crime scene showing the victims' bodies on the floor still in their uniforms covered in blood. One of Luna's attorneys, Clarence Birch, said in his opening statement that DNA evidence was unreliable and that he planned to show that another person had confessed to the murders. He claimed that the videotaped statement was coerced, that Luna was beaten into making it, and that his family was threatened with deportation. Former Palatine police officer Ron Conley was called to testify. He told the jury about going into the building with Manny Castro and stopping him from going any further once he saw a hand and a foot holding the freezer door open. Conley said the best way to describe it would be a mass of humanity, one body on top of another, arms and legs on top of each other. This according to an April 13, 2007 TwinCities.com article. Eileen Bacala testified that Degorski called her to pick up him and Luna at the Jewel parking lot, where they told her they had robbed Brown's chicken. When they got to Eileen's home, she told the court the two men split the money. The next day, she said she went to the car wash with Degorski, where he cleaned Luna's car. Eileen went on to testify that a few weeks later, she was at Degorski's house with Degorski and Luna and Luna told her about slitting Lynn Ellenfeld's throat. Dr. Jane Homeyer, who in 1993 was a forensic scientist for the Northern Illinois Police Crime Lab, testified that the last meal at Brown's Chicken was purchased at 9.08 p.m. She said the trash bin on the west side of the restaurant had very little in it, suggesting that it had been recently replaced. She said the trash bin contained a cardboard container with four pieces of chicken and bones, french fries, biscuits, coleslaw, and paper napkins. She compared the items in the garbage can with the receipt and believed it matched that of the last meal on the register. She said the items were sealed in plastic and sent to the lab. Homeyer testified that she later found one napkin that contained a partial left palm print. The defense went after the prosecution's evidence, claiming that Luna's confession was coerced, the DNA had been damaged from improper storage, and the witnesses were liars. They called to the stand Dr. Carl Reich, founder of a private DNA lab, who said he found 1,806 persons with identical DNA matches. This testimony refuted the prosecution expert, who said the profile would be expected to be found in 1 in 2.8 trillion Hispanic persons. The doctor also testified that there was no way to tell exactly when the DNA was placed on the chicken bone. 
On May 10, 2007, after only one day of deliberation, Juan Luna was found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder. As more than a dozen officers lined the walls of the courtroom, Judge Gahn warned the courtroom that he would order the officers to arrest anyone who did not keep quiet after the verdict was announced. During the penalty phase, defense attorney Clarence Birch told the jury that the prosecution's portrayal of his client as a monster was incorrect. Birch said that Ann Lockett and Eileen Bacala were liars who gave inconsistent versions of their stories and had no evidence except for what they claimed Degorski told them. He then asked for his client to receive life without parole. During his rebuttal, Cook County State's Attorney Scott Cassidy showed the jury pictures of the seven victims. He told them to follow the law, not to give sympathy to Luna or the victims, just follow the law. On May 17th, after two hours of deliberation, the jury decided that Juan Luna should spend the rest of his life in prison instead of receiving the death penalty. Luna held his breath before the decision was announced, then hugged his attorneys. Jennifer Schilling, the oldest daughter of Richard and Lynn Ellenfelt, said the family respected the jury's decision and that they were personally against the death penalty. She did say that she wished Juan Luna's family would admit that he was guilty. Degorski's trial was going to be more difficult. Unlike Luna, the prosecution had no DNA linking him to the scene. The prosecution would have to rely heavily on witness statements. Their main witnesses would be Ann Lockett and Eileen Bacala, but they also had a person who was on the medical staff at the Cook County Jail who treated Degorski. The medical staff member apparently asked Degorski how he could live with himself after killing the people at Brown's Chicken, and Degorski apparently replied, it was just for fun, a thrill. This according to an August 4, 2009 Daily Herald article by Christy Gutowski. Assistant State's Attorney Linus Kelisius led the prosecution. Mark Levitt was the lead defense lawyer for Degorski. During Boydier, over 80 prospective jurors were dismissed for religious or political beliefs regarding capital punishment, financial hardship, medical issues, and difficulties with English being a second language. During opening statements on August 31st, the prosecution reiterated Luna and Degorski's claims to friends about wanting to do something big and accomplishing that with the robbery and seven murders. Assistant State's Attorney Lou Longatano told the jury how each of the seven victims were murdered. He said that although police never found the gun used in the murders, because Degorski threw it in the Fox River, a witness would testify to selling Degorski a 38 caliber handgun in 1992, which was the type of gun used in the murders. The defense claimed that their client was innocent, saying that Degorski was not present during the murders and the prosecution could not prove otherwise. Mark Levitt said that Degorski only knew details about the murders from Luna, and that Degorski was only bragging to others when he claimed to be present at the crime scene. He also said that another man confessed in 1999 but was later cleared. According to an August 31, 2009 Daily Herald article by Christy Gutowski and Barbara Vitello, Assistant State's Attorney Longatano said, This wasn't a robbery gone bad. 
This was never about the money. It was about the thrill. They wanted to do something big, and they made a big splash in the blood of seven innocent victims. Degorski's attorney, Mark Levitt, said that fingerprints and shoe prints at the scene did not match his client, although the prosecution claimed that a shoe print did match Degorski's Nike Air Force shoe. Levitt also said there is a second DNA profile on the chicken, which did not match Degorski, and said this showed that his client was not present at the murder scene. Former Palatine police officer Ron Conley testified during the first day of Degorski's trial. He told the jury about the morning he came upon seven bodies inside the restaurant. The jury were then shown video footage from the crime scene. Longatano told the jury that Luna flipped the switchbox to cut out the lights as the video showed the clock stopped at 9.52 p.m. On August 31st, Jane Homeyer, who had worked for the crime lab and preserved Luna's chicken dinner back in 1993, was called to testify. Homeyer told the jury that the trash can contained chicken, french fries, coleslaw, and biscuits from the meal. Other than that, the trash can had no other food in it. The investigators at the scene knew this had to be significant because the food matched the last receipt from the register, a meal for $6.69, which was rung up at 9.08 p.m. when the restaurant closed. Two DNA profiles were found from the chicken meal. One matched Juan Luna, the other could not be identified. Degorski's defense team claimed that the person who matched this profile was Luna's accomplice, not their client. Eileen Bacala testified again and reiterated what she had said on the stand at Luna's trial, saying that Degorski admitted to her that he and Luna committed the murders. The prosecution called Matt Wisentek to the stand who testified that he stole a 38 caliber handgun from a friend's home in 1992 and later sold it to Degorski for $50. Anne Lockett testified again and pointed the finger at Degorski and Luna, saying they had both admitted to the murders. The defense countered by attacking Lockett's credibility, pointing out that she had substance abuse issues. But Lockett testified saying that she was completely sober at the time she was told about the murders, which is why she remembers it vividly. On the prosecution's last day, they called former assistant state's attorney Michael McHale, who was now a Cook County judge. McHale testified that Degorski told him and Palatine police detective William King about the murders on May 17, 2002. McHale said Degorski admitted to robbing the restaurant with Luna and brought a 38 caliber gun that he bought from his friend, Matt Wisentek, and a knife. He said they wedged the outside of the back door shut so no one could get out. He told the men that he fired a warning shot into the ceiling. He admitted killing Richard Ellenfeld and Tom Menes in the cooler and then started mopping up the blood because he was afraid he might leave footprints. He described seeing Luna slit Lynn Ellenfeld's throat and then start shooting the gun into the cooler at the remaining employees. McHale said Dekorski told them he threw the gun and the knife into the Fox River and called to ask Eileen Bacala to meet them in the Jewel parking lot. He also admitted to calling Ann Lockett at Forest Hospital and telling her to watch the news 
because he had done something big. Alessia Hines, a medical technician for the Cook County Jail, testified that Degorski admitted that he and Luna had killed the people at Brown's Chicken for fun. She said while treating him for an injury he suffered in jail, Degorski looked at her desk and saw a newspaper with an article about the murders. According to Hines' testimony, as reported in a September 14, 2009 Daily Herald article by Barbara Vitello, Degorski said to her, Oh, we made the front page news. On September 14th, the defense began its case. Their first witness was John Simonek, who had confessed to the murders in 1995. He claimed that he confessed because police would not leave him alone and he finally gave in, confessing to what they wanted. The defense claimed that Simonek was Luna's real accomplice, not Degorski. Former Brown's Chicken employee Casey Hefts was called to testify by the defense. Then Casey Sander, she was scheduled to work on Friday, January 8, 1993, but was able to get the night off as Rico Solis took her shift. Casey had been haunted by that guilt ever since, even suffering from recurring nightmares in which she was one of the slain victims. In her testimony, Hef said that police kept bringing her in for questioning after the murders. Over the next six years, she said she was brought in over 20 times because police didn't like her answers. On April 28, 1999, after eight hours of being pressured by former detectives James Bell, the head of the task force, and James Burns, Casey said she finally broke down and made up a confession, telling them that she and her boyfriend, Todd Wakefield, took part in the murders. The task force had focused on Wakefield as the killer. John Simonek, who had also falsely confessed, had said that Todd was the killer and that he was with him at Brown's Chicken in at least one of his versions. The last defense witness was a forensic expert who testified that DNA found on the chicken dinner did not match Degorski, a fact that the prosecution had never claimed. Lead defense attorney Mark Levitt told the jury that police and the crime scene techs made numerous errors early on that compromised the investigation. On September 22nd, the defense rested. During closing arguments, the prosecution portrayed Degorski as a remorseless killer. Assistant State's Attorney Tom Beastie said Degorski and Luna wanted to do something big and carried out their plan on January 8, 1993. Defense Attorney Mark Levitt closed out his argument saying, that his client was a 20-year-old who bragged to friends about murders he never committed in order to get attention. He said Degorski only knew the details he told people from talking with Luna. Levitt continued to attack the prosecution's lack of evidence and errors he said they made during the investigation. A jury comprised of six men and six women deliberated for less than two hours convicting Degorski on September 29, 2009. Jurors would later say that the testimonies of Anne and Eileen were key to their guilty verdict. They said the women knew too many details that only someone who was there would know. The jury also said they believed that Degorski was the leader of the two killers. During the sentencing phase, 
Mark Levitt, one of the defense attorneys, told the jury that his client had been abused both physically and sexually as a child. In response to Levitt's plea for mercy, state's attorney Tom Beastie showed the jury pictures of Degorski's victims. Do you think they were pleading for their lives? Do you think they were begging for mercy? He slaughtered them that night. He wanted to do something big, and he wanted to be famous. Well, he did do something big, and he is famous, and now it's his judgment day. This according to an October 20, 2009, NBC Chicago article by Andrew Greiner. On October 20th, the jury voted 10-2 to 2 for the death penalty, which resulted in Degorski being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The two jurors who voted against the death penalty later said they were swayed by the witnesses the defense put on during the sentencing phase. The day before the decision, on October 19th, the Palatine Village Council approved plans for Chase Bank to build a branch on the site of the former Brown's Chicken restaurant where the murders occurred. Degorski and Luna each filed a series of appeals after their trials, all of which were denied. The Brown's Chicken Corporation never recovered after the murders. In January of 1993, there were 115 Brown's Chicken locations in existence. By January of 2005, there were only 50. Customers had lost interest in the restaurant after the brutal murders. President of Brown's Chicken, Frank Portillo, sold some of the restaurants to pay off a $3 million loan he owed to a bank. In 1995, Michael Castro's parents sued Brown's Chicken, claiming the corporation did not do enough to protect their son. Rico Solis's mother joined the lawsuit the next year. The case, however, was dismissed. The judge ruled that the corporation could not be held responsible for the murders because it had left security measures to the owners of the franchises. In December of 2009, Brown's Chicken filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after losing a lawsuit, which was filed by Thomas Kenefick, the minority business owner. In a 2010 October interview, Frank Portillo discussed how Luna and Degorski's actions had the effect of not only murdering seven innocent people and destroying their families, but also ruining Brown's Chicken, the company, and the franchise owners. In 2017, Brown's Chicken closed its last restaurant in the city limits of Chicago. From a peak of almost 300 restaurants in 13 different states, the website now lists 19 locations, all in the Chicago suburbs. Today, Juan Luna and Jim Degorski are both locked up at the Statesville Correctional Center, a maximum security prison in Crest Hill, Illinois, about 40 miles southwest of Chicago. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to subscribe to or follow my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, I will be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2022 in Vegas. You will not want to miss this event. Use promo code MURDERISH to get 10% off a standard badge. That's code MURDERISH for 10% off. See you at CrimeCon next year. Check out MURDERISH.com if you want to buy MURDERISH merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. 
If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you to Angelina and Michelle Z for becoming Murderish Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you guys so much. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Steve Field. A list of sources used for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.